0: Great. Well, welcome. This is our seventh meeting out of nine. Uh, we hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Two weeks ago, Matthew was in British Columbia leading uh, retreats there, which sounds pretty great. Um, but I'm, and I'm very glad you're back. I'm glad to do this. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to give the floor to, to Matthew for today, a, lot of, a lot of today's class. He's going to speak uh, first about the development of the idea of the Trinity, and uh, you, have, you know what you're doing, and, but then we're going to talk about, the it's time, it's time to talk about, in the break between early Christianity and Judaism, the emergence of what becomes anti-Semitism. Mm. We can't have a class on shared origins and different paths if we don't address that, of course, and so we, we're going to start diving into that territory too, and then Susan Ockencloss is going to share with us some of her beautiful work in combating anti-semitism in the church uh, today. So so Matthew, take it away. Over to me. Well, uh, first of all, thanks to Suzanne and Susan for
1: uh, taking the chair for holding the post two weeks ago. And uh, was that recorded?
0: Yes, it's yeah? up on the uh, Lev Shalom Institute
1: website. Oh, OK, so I've got to go back and listen. But I've heard really wonderful things about that session. And I was sad to miss it. and part of the territory that, well, I'm not all sure where it where it wound its way to, but the, the assignment that week, the topic assigned was oh, the virgin birth, the incarnation, the holy trinity, um, how much, we didn't wh- get where there. did it go?
0: We didn't, didn't get there. It.
1: Well, I thought um, uh, an interesting place to start today might be to look at the doctrine of the holy trinity in Christianity Um, and and then from there lead into our conversation around Christian anti-semitism and the trinity it's one of those doctrines uh, among many that Christianity has historically used as a club sort of to say you know it's great that Jews and Muslims are monotheists but but we know something you don't know and we know that God's really a trinity and um, And so I wanted to spend a little time playing with that uh, and looking at how the doctrine arose and maybe what it's pointing to. Uh, How many are you familiar with with the idea? God in three persons. How many of you think it makes sense? Two, three! (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) So, the idea is that divine reality exists as a trinity, that there are these three persons in a single Godhead, which has left um, people in non-Christian traditions sort of scratching their head for most of Christian history. And it's not a doctrine that's actually explicitly stated in the New Testament record. The word the trinity isn't used in the New Testament but there are references to God as, as transcendent source, as Father. There are references to the Holy Spirit of God, and there are references to Jesus um, revealing God in human life. And so you see the, the sort of seeds of what will emerge as a full-blown doctrine. Uh, but one of the questions that some recent Christian theologians have asked, well, one is, is the doctrine of the Trinity just a, a strange later emergence um, that, that's kind of tacked on? I or is, is it something that develops naturally and organically out of the New Testament teachings? And what some of these folks have said, one, one priest who comes to mind, a Roman Catholic priest named Ramon Panacar, uh, who, a very interesting guy, he was born, I think, in 1918 to a Spanish Roman Catholic mother into an Indian Hindu father. And so he sort of had um, inter-religious dialogue in his DNA from the get-go. Uh, and later he would, he would go off to India. He was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest, but then went to India to explore his Hindu roots. And he would later say, "I left Europe as a Christian." In India, I discovered myself a Hindu, and I returned a Buddhist, without ever having ceased to be a Christian. Um, So it gives you a little sense of his expansive spirit. But he says that we need to approach the Trinity not as as this abstract doctrine, but actually as a mystical intuition, uh, or an experience, that arises in the experience of Jesus, that the seeds are in the way Jesus experienced divine reality. So I wanted to put a few um, quotations on here that show up in the Gospels to look at where it's maybe emerging from. And what, was, what Panikkar argues, he says, we have to get away from, in the Christian tradition, what's called Christology, which is our theology about Jesus. What do we believe about Jesus? And um, how was he the Christ? And what does that mean? Which keeps us all in sort of conceptual abstract thinking. And he said we need to move into Christophany, which is the uh, moving into the consciousness of Jesus. What was the experience, the mystical experience that he had of divine reality? Um, and so Panikkar, he actually says that, that we can see all reality and all beings as Christophany, as um, manifestations of what Christianity calls
0: Christ. Um, um, so that, that ending, P-H-A-N-Y, means?
1: Yes, yeah, so um, if we say theophany, if we're looking at um, the appearance of God in the burning bush to Moses, that would be called a theophany, which means a manifestation, a, manifestation. a revelation, a manifestation of God. So theophany. Um, so Christophany epiphany. is a manifestation, or epiphany, epiphany, right.
2: is the revelation of seeing. Of seeing God. something,
1: this sudden, yeah, realization. Okay, Um, So, Theophany, manifestation of God, Epiphany, I'm sorry, Christophany, Christophany. a manifestation of Christ. Christ
3: in God, or God in Christ? Well,
1: so, the way Panikkar uses this term, he says in Christian language, Jesus was defined as, as the full union of the human and the divine, and that Christ is that union of the human and divine, And he says that for Christians, Jesus can be seen as the symbol of the whole of reality. And so actually that union of the human and divine, or the spirit and the material, um, that's actually the mystery at the heart of the whole universe, the whole cosmos, and at the heart of every single being, that union of of your individual manifest personhood with divine reality. And so he says we're all essentially, in that sense, Christophanes, disclosures of that union, that mystical union. So that's sort of where he goes with it. Um, and you remember last last, uh, two weeks back when we were together, three weeks back now, um, we looked at the way the New Testament takes the language of Mashiach, of Messiah, and it begins unfolding it in a collective way so that Paul can talk about the body of the Messiah as um not just an individual person. He says Jesus is the head of the body, but uh, the whole Christian community are members of that body. Um, And so Messiah takes on a collective uh, sense, that it's not one person, it's an unfolding collective of of individuals. Um, So what I want to look at is some of the ways Jesus talks about the divine human relationship. What's the understanding in the Gospels of the relationship with human beings uh, to divine reality? And it's interesting I said that divine reality and I pointed up.
4: Yeah. So, <laughs>
1: um, so there isn't one uniform way Jesus in the Gospel accounts talks about the divine human relationship. There are many ways. So one quote I wanted to start with. Uh, Jesus says the Father, and here he's using First century patriarchal language, we could say the source, the divine, God. The Father is greater than I. So this is a quote from John's Gospel, um, 14.28 I have, chapter 14, verse 28. Uh, There are similar statements like this. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, uh, someone comes up to him and says, oh, good teacher, good rabbi. And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good save God alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this sense of God is greater. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, we get Jesus saying things like, I am in the Father, or in God, and the Father is in me. So a different kind of um, relationship between human and divine realities expressed there. And then finally, there's this sort of really mystical saying that shows up in John's Gospel where Jesus says, I and the Father, the source, are one. And Christians, historically, have sort of installed a glass ceiling there, and they've said, okay, we'll let Jesus say that, but no one else can say that. Um, But what Panikkar would say is that um, these are all facets of the divine-human relationship that Jesus expresses, and so they're all facets of the divine-human relationship that any of us can experience. Um, So if we were to talk about what qualities Each of these kinds of divine human relationships cultivate what what would be cultivated in this kind of relationship God is greater than me humility humility great work humility what what might be cultivated in I am in God and God is in me joy
2: non dualism
1: non dualism okay might we say intimacy? All right. God is that
2: real intimacy?
1: It's almost a, a sexual metaphor. I mean, a very intimate metaphor. God and me, me and God. And then what is expressed in the statement like God and I are one? That's the most non-dualistic. The most non dualistic So that's totally union of divine human reality. So. The idea here is that each of these are different facets of how human beings can experience God. And often in mystical traditions, we turn this into a ladder and we sort of say, well, this is kindergarten spirituality, when you think God is greater than you. And then this is sort of grown up unit of spirituality. But what Panikkar would argue here is that that it's not a ladder, it's a circle. (laughs) And that we move through these different encounters, not just in the course of our life, but in the course of a day. There are times when you just need to cry out to a a God who is greater than you. Then there are times where you need the intimacy of lover and beloved, of that mutual delight in the divine relationship. And then times where you just want to be lost in total deep union. And so what he argues is that this is actually the intuition that's at the heart of what would become the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, that Jesus was essentially breaking out of a rigid monotheism that preserves a divide, a sort of eternal divide between the creature and the creator, we're we're always separate, God made us and we're here and God's there, Um, and instead experiences the divine human relationship as as a dance, as, as this mutual movement, um, so, so there's the transcendent God beyond. There's also this imminent inter-abiding way of experiencing God um, within us, within creation, and then there's experiencing God deep within as the deepest reality in one's own self. Paula. Uh, so how Pauline. how is that?
3: Pauline, different? I'm sorry, Pauline. That's okay. How is that different than the the early mystical understanding of the Judaic tradition that doesn't that while
5: it's monotheistic there's these relationships inherent
1: even in the hebrew language itself absolutely so yeah jonathan you wanted to say something first well jump in but just to say that jesus is jesus of course is as we talked about in earlier weeks, he's working within streams within Judaism. His experience isn't like coming, you know,
0: out of alien territory. Um, but what would you say? Oh, okay. So, triads. We love triads. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be one of the ways we organize things in threes. I don't know why, um, but so in the so Symbolic. somewhat unrelated uh, parallel, I guess to, to this beautiful beautiful mystical awareness that, you know, Jesus as mystical and spiritual teacher and, and revealer. Um, in, the, in the way the rabbis, and again, when we say the rabbis, these are the contemporaries in the first century, and right around then, structure the prayer service. The morning prayer service is very important. The center of the morning prayer service is the Shema, where we declare God is one, right? There are two blessings before the Shema that are recited that are affirmations of aspects of divinity, and one after. The first one, the, the way modern Jewish scholarship uh, uh, teachers talk about it is they talk about creation, revelation, and redemption. Uh, that's the triad in the Jewish prayers. Creation is when the first the first blessing before the Shema is is where we give where we Praise and bless God, creator of nat- of the natural world. Right? Baruch atah Adonai. Hamachadesh v'chol yom ma'aseh You know, the one who... Re- re- the, the way we... Ex- yeah, the way we experience the divinity in the natural world all around us. You know. The second blessing is for the giver of Torah. Out of love, God gave us wisdom, the human capacity to perceive and grow, right? So there's the God of, the God of nature that's all around it, and then there's the God that speaks through human teaching, and then we say the Shema, and then the blessing after the Shema is for the God who liberates, uh, because we always remember the crossing of the Red Sea during prayers in the Jewish tradition. Because that's the movement from, that's what, and we give thanks for El Yisrael, the Redeemer of Israel. So the triad—that's not an exact lineup with this—but is the Jewish triad is experiencing God as the Creator, God as the Revealer of wisdom, of insight, of spiritual knowledge, and as Redeemer, the one who uh, the, the power in the universe that allows us to struggle for freedom. And uh, in the middle of that is the Shema, the declaration that it's all one. So later when we get into Kabbalah in the Middle Ages, three isn't enough. There are 10 aspects of the divine in the Kabbalistic tree of life. Because how do you describe oneness? In all its manifestations. So so yes, there is a triad in rabbinic thought that I just described that I thought would be interesting to mention. So, so,
1: right, so this is, you see these kinds of um, triads showing up, not even just in uh, Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, but, you know, outside as well. You find similar things in uh, Hindu tradition um, and other faiths. So, what? What's that?
6: The three little pigs, the three bears. We the like three little pigs, the <laughs> three <laughs> bears. Right, right. No, no. We are fascinated by by with
1: three. that triadic structure.
2: Three is an important symbol. Yeah. and as a symbol it has no ending. So do not imagine that it isn't a mystery. A symbol is not a sign. A sign is horse you see a horse but a symbol like three has a lot of meaning in all the traditions and if you just think of mother, father child right. you think of creativity. mother father child mother mm-hmm. father child right. is the original right? right and in fairy tales well, you have to have three chances right. and that's because there right. are three levels of understanding and there are three ages. And it goes on and on like that. But three is an important symbol, and it means not, um, not eaten up in knowing, not eaten up in stability, because it's always a little unstable. Three goes on. Which keeps it moving. And yes. Whereas in a binary system, you get
1: is. that
0: hard either exactly. or, black, right. white, right, wrong. Right. And and, yes. and here you get. That's synthesis true. and antithesis, and uh, you get no, thesis, thesis antithesis, 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 and synthesis, synthesis. which leads one to one another. Exactly. So it's a constant separating and coming together. Yeah. So the yeah.
1: So so the idea there is that that Jesus had neither a very static, rigid sort of dualistic, um, monotheistic experience of divine reality, nor was it just a simple monism or pantheism where everything is just one and is God but that it was both um, unitive and relational, that that it was a dance, it was a movement, and uh, that we also uh, experienced that movement. So what Panikkar says is that uh, instead of thinking in Christian theology that the Trinity is a description of a sort of God out there, it's actually a description of the deep triadic structure of reality itself. And so you have what's called the Father, which is sort of, God is the ground of being of infinite potential, um, the source. And then you have the son, which is God incarnate manifest reality, um, which Jesus gives voice to, um, but which is unfolding through all of creation. And then the spirit he says is, is the, the movement, the motion that keeps them to the two as a single reality. We're not talking about two different realities. We're talking about one reality that's dancing within itself. Uh, does, that, does
0: that... That was yeah. beautifully described. Sure, let's hear some questions or comments. Yeah, please.
6: Yeah. So, so this reminds me of a comment you made maybe four or five sessions back in which you said even the text in the Bible has has if I recall the body this the soul and the spirit. Right there's
1: another three that's another three. yeah.
6: So so that body soul and spirit in the text mm-hmm. is actually has been realized in the in the in the in the,
1: in the doctrine of the godhead right right and godhead. yeah And nicely put.
6: And do you see is there a correspondence between the three things you wrote on the board and the and the, the father the son the holy spirit well,
1: you can you can do it in you, you can do it in different ways. You could say Father is is um is the source, the transcendent source. God is greater than our individual selves. You could say um, perhaps that Holy Spirit is this the divine immanence that interabides in all things, and then you could say that this speaking of I and God are one. That that's the the union, the full union that's called incarnation in Christianity. So Jesus discloses that union of the two. Um, you can do it that way. A contemporary thinker, Ken Wilber, some of you will know his, his work. He talks about the three faces of God. And so that's that's God in the first person, uh, God in the second person, and God in the third person. So first person is, I. I, I am God. Um, second person is, you. 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 So there's that's where... Devotion comes in, God is Thou, God is the Divine Beloved, God is the Holy Other, and then third person is, it's, um, it, um, this is God as, as the web of life, as, um, incarnate in all things. This is God as, as the trees and the sunset, us. so as us, us, yes. So in that sense, again, there's a three there, and that those are three ways the divine reality is, is experienced. And it can't be isolated in any single one of those experiences. It has to keep moving.
0: Um, I, I I want to say something. I'm really enjoying this. And the danger of systems, which is the only way we think, right? We are we are stuck with it. Right. Is that we immediately want to know well which is which? Right. No matter how many times we say no 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 no, maybe we should have in the age of. Um, of, of video and moving images as being our... Pr- Maybe we should have a graphic uh, that's not static even, that just keeps yes, moving. Right. Otherwise, we're stuck trying to figure... We, we, want, you have, we have to imagine that when we're just writing on a, on a paper. But, and so throughout history, people have said, well, I know what the three are, right. because we want to know. Right. Darn it! You know, but the truth is it's in constant, it, it's a description of a of a of a, um, uh, of a shifting yeah. perspective, not of three points in space. Did you have your hand up, Karen? Um, I don't know, I
7: think mean, this may be a little I have just been very interested
8: in let's say, you know, the you know, we have let's say the Hebrew scripture that,
3: mm-hmm. you know, goes back. Then we have this big Hellenistic influence,
8: right? That's kind of washed over the land. And I guess, you know, have, you know, having been a student, you know, studied Plato and some you of know, the Greek thinkers, you know, sort of I don't know if you can comment on this and, and how this might be a way of um, synthesizing mm-hmm. some of Hellenistic um, co- you know consciousness, the understanding of what you know what it is to be um, both flesh and spirit, mm-hmm. you know, based on mm-hmm. what the Greeks have now taught the people living
1: in that land. Uh, certainly both Judaism and what emerges as Christianity are working to integrate um, Greek and uh, Hellenistic thought with their Semitic base, and you see that in John's Gospel. It's constantly, it plays with this concept of the logos, of logos, which is translated word, in the beginning was the word, but that was a Greek philosophical category, how does the unmoved mover actually interact with creation? And so you have this intermediate logos, which is sort of the rational ordering principle that, that the unmoved mover of the Greek, is a, of the Greek um, philosophers is able to sort of interface with creation. Um, and that ultimately becomes part of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, the word. Um, so you definitely see them. And then you see Jewish thinkers, uh, Philo of Alexandria. You see different um, people in both traditions Synthesizing thought.
4: So they're they're taking that um, yeah. the information that's come to them right. and bring it into their context. Right. Absolutely. I'm just saying they're not just taking
0: the information hasn't come to them, the information has overwhelmed them. In other words, it's a cosmology right, yeah. and Greek thought becomes the cosmology. just like in our time, the cosmology of somehow well, I don't want to oversimplify this, but so I'll just so i qualify it that way. But um we live in the age of scientific revolutions. Right, so we have learned to separate the rational from the uh, non-rational, mm-hmm. and to uh, and so that influences how we approach all of reality. When you read Torah, they the, it's clear in the five books of Moses they weren't worrying about that. It wasn't a category, so they didn't have to resolve it because it wasn't a category. If Moses. Uh, uh, comes to a burning bush and, get, and, and his mission in life is revealed to him we don't have to argue about whether it was a real experience or not if we're back in Torah mindset but we're stuck with it right <laughs> we're stu- we're, and, and so we are busy writing books and books and books re, re, trying, to, trying to make sure that we can um, harmonize science and religion right and that's our, that's our cosmology we're wrestling with it in the Greek times, there was, a, there was this idea of spirit being a separate realm from matter, something that the Torah does not deal with. Uh, there's interaction all the time, and it's not something that they're worrying about. But Judaism and early Christianity, then have then this is the world they're raised in. They study these books. This is what everybody talks about. They're in the Greek world, and so they have to harmonize their traditions with this new understanding of how the cosmos, new a description of how the cosmos works. That's you, you want to take issue with that?
9: No, I want to try to make a metaphor and see if I understand it. Is it like the difference between reading Shakespeare and performing Shakespeare? Or, or even watching someone perform Shakespeare? It seems to me the rational is, is about the conceptual ideas. It's kind of from here up. And the performance of it takes in the experience of it. Is that what you're trying to?
0: Um, I don't know.
9: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm curious. Je- Jesse I, might have something to contribute. I, to I that. go to Hebrew course, school, yeah. right? And it's concepts, and they're telling mm-hmm. me a lot of stuff. I don't ever remember practicing something in a group of people that was experiential that would have given me an experience of what it is they're talking about.
1: So, so that... Distinction you're describing is what theologians like Ramon Panikar are talking about. He's saying, how do we get away from abstract, reified concepts, and how do we enter into the experience behind the doctrine that the doctrine is attempting to formulate? And so um, he, he would say the Trinity isn't something that you believe in; it's it's a dance that you participate in. How do you join in that experience? Nice right. So uh, what he actually this. Weird, strange, unhelpful word he coined. Homeomorphic
9: I like that
1: word. Equivalencies. Oh, for goodness <laughs> sake. <laughs> <laughs>
9: so
1: what he says is that uh, in interreligious dialogue, what we tend to do is dialogue at the level of formulated doctrine. So a Christian sits down and goes, Well, we believe in the Trinity. Where's the Trinity in your system? And then yeah. a good Muslim goes, Well, we don't believe in a trinity. So Panikar says we have to stop uh, dialoguing at that level, and instead we look for what he calls homeomorphic equivalencies. We look for where the experience, assuming that human spiritual experience is universal, that, that across the board humans experience divine reality in a number of different ways across religious traditions. So it may not be helpful for a Christian to say, well, hello, Jewish person, tell me where the trinity is. But if you say... Where is the experience of God as transcendent in your tradition? Where is the experience of God as imminent in your tradition? Then you start getting to the, the things the Trinity is
0: pointing to. So those are the, the uh, that's really cool. So yes, so yes, inter-religious dialogue in general is about, here's our doctrine, what's your doctrine? And you talk about it, and then you maybe say, oh, that sounds familiar. But this is a whole other level of sharing.
1: And this is, this, is, this is what's been um, called on the contemporary scene, inter-spiritual dialogue. Whereas interfaith, and we'll jump to the question, interfaith was sort of the tradition, the conversation between folks of goodwill and the various traditions. It's happened for a hundred years, uh, where we say, what do you believe? What do I believe? Let's and not it, kill each other. Let's not kill each other. So that was a huge leap forward, but it's a dialogue that has happened primarily at the social and the intellectual levels so we get together around an interfaith dinner or we get together around a shared habitat for humanity service project and we talk it out inter-spiritual dialogue this was coined by a, a roman catholic monk named Wayne Teasdale and he said this is the dialogue that moves to the contemplative and experiential level of engagement between traditions so interfaith would say what do you believe inter-spiritual would say, how do you pray? How do
0: you practice? Mm, how, how do you experience? Where? How do you experience? And then it would say... Hold on a second. Yeah. Yeah. And then there, it would say, now let's share on. in those experiences. There are a bunch of hands. We'll recognize them all. Okay? Uh, whose hand was that? I just
3: can't help. So Ram what he said to the Dalai Lama was, "So, how do you get it on with God? Right. <laughs> <laughs> deep deep, deep acumenism.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, How do you get it on with God? Jesse...
10: This whole discussion, especially the the mention of the word uh, cosmology, reminds me that in 20th century cosmology, the concept of light, or the concept of light, you could repeat those three Exactly. Ah, yeah. There's light, the wave, light the particle. Mm-hmm. And the first the first one says okay, they're separate. The second one says whenever one travels the other is mm-hmm. and the third one says all paradoxes are explained.
0: That's right. Yeah. It Since separate. we just marked the hundredth anniversary of the theory of relativity mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and the and the way we view the universe was transformed 100 years ago and then quantum uh, physics came along with it, I think that is what works for us, because it, it is our, mm. our highest sort of consensus about how the universe works. Light is a particle and a wave, just what you said, I won't repeat it. But
1: before. the wave and particle aren't two separate
0: things that you can right. pull apart. Here's the particle part, and here's the it's wave part. Just, Depends on your point of that. view or the, where you are in the cycle of experiencing that constant mm-hmm. uh, constant oscillation.
10: And I wanted to, to make a, the, the word homeomorphic equivalency to a professional mathematician has really quite a precise meaning. Oh. Uh, and it, it just means that things are, really are the same, although they look different. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that you can actually draw lines <laughs> and say this corresponds right, right. to that, this corresponds mm-hmm. to that. And, and not only are they the same uh, structurally, but they're also the same. Uh, the word homeomorphic means they're the same metrically as well. The distances wow. that are, are, as you measure the distance over here, that's also preserved over here, means they're really just alike although you can't
1: tell it although you've labeled them differently beautiful that's helpful that Panikar actually knows what he's
10: talking about (laughs) thank you yeah um i'm reminded when you say tol was thinking that doesn't
0: have a dichotomy between oh okay we'll repeat it unless you can speak louder um when you were talking about the torah not knowing Uh, see the bias there? Uh-huh. You see? You see? You see our bias, not knowing the difference between reality and whatever. No, it's all real. Okay, right. exactly. It reminds me of
11: the child psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, yes. who developed the idea of the
4: child's transitional object, mm. which is the substitute for the mother when the mother is not around, and he says, "Don't ask." child, never ask the child, what is that? Is that real? Is that a fantasy? You
0: just, it's fake, it's both. Right. That's what it reminds Right, of. right. We've invested it with that. Yeah.
5: Exactly. Uh, yes? Uh, what this gentleman said about uh, us as human beings being body, mind, uh, body, soul, and spirit, uh, and that's a trinity, uh, it helped me, I was thinking of the same thing while you all were talking, and it helped me understand the Trinity. We know that when we recite the Shema, uh, we, say, we say that God is one, and it's very hard for a Jewish people, even myself, to understand how God can be one and then three persons, but um, we see that God is, that we are made in God's image and we are three in one body soul and spirit and we need all three working together to function and that's the way god is the father the son and the spirit and we can see uh the trinity in the Tanakh and in in creation because it's the father who spoke and uh, creation came into being. It was the word that was spoken. And as this uh, gentleman said, uh, this is Matthew. Matthew. Matthew, as Matthew said uh, in the Gospel of John, it says, "In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing that was made was." that was made, there was nothing made that was not made through him, the word. So, and in the first chapter of Genesis, we see God saying, let us make man in our own image. Let us make man. Who is he speaking to? And then we also see in the creation, it said that the world was all messed up, tohu and the spirit of God covered over the waters, so we see in creation the Father speaking, the Word acting, and the Spirit of God, the power of God uh, uh, creating.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Now just to mess us up, who says that we're made of body, soul, soul, and spirit? Uh, You could come up with a different system that would have eight parts of the human experience you know it's like that's the way we do it we make systems we make systems that's not doesn't mean and the systems are helpful and they help us and and they're especially helpful if they make us more loving and aware human beings those are the most helpful systems
1: they help our piddly little rational minds get some kind of hold on reality but of course they're just it's the zen saying you know I pointed the moon and the fool looks at my finger. So each of these formulations are fingers pointing to the moon of, of reality, of experience. And we shouldn't,
0: yes, you know, hold and, too tightly to any of them. But I, love, but, it's, but I love what you said. But I also want us not to then, the, I think the important word is reify, make that into, oh, that's
5: the way. this is it. Mm-hmm.
0: Right? I'm carrying my bowling ball around with me the rest of my life, you know. Yeah. Uh, there were more hands. Gail?
4: With that, those three aspects, those three components, are very much what people simply experience. And I'm struck that very often when people say, as is very common, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious, it's because they're aware of these three kinds of experiences in themselves but don't see a place for them. Mm-hmm. in their particular tradition, mm-hmm. church or synagogue, as right. we're talking about here. right? And so whatever the difficulties of getting stuck on system, mm-hmm. this piece is not about system. This is about trying to
3: fit experience mm-hmm. into a system. Does
5: right. that make sense? Yeah. So that one has a place to put in community
4: one's actual experience. And I'm very struck that this Interpretation, as you then did it, of the Trinity is extremely powerful. Mm. Yes. But and also not what most of my Christian they think of two men and a bird. Yeah. yeah. Right.
1: Rosemary Radford Ruether, one of the right. Christian feminists, she says people. She says the Trinity is not two men and a bird, <laughs> which is it's usually old man God the Father, Jesus crucified on a stick in front of him, and then the a, a dove flying above them, and that's the Trinity, which is yeah. <laughs>
4: Is that regardless of what you just said, that for Jews in particular, the, the really bedrock tends to be for most everybody, God is out there. Mm-hmm. God is creator, but not either, not imminent. Mm-hmm. And even the idea of saying one has been
1: frowned upon in Jewish tradition quite a lot of
4: saying one we <laughs> are one I mean, that
1: we are, are one with one God but not mm-hmm. union. well this is in John's gospel this is one of the things that that the gospel frames Jesus as having been crucified for he says this and they say this is blasphemy oh. and um, and so it's one of the marks against him and now that may be polemic I think I think but, we should, I think, yeah. think we should speak about that and we'll get into, we're going to go into all the polemic there but
0: just a minute um,
4: Presence of God. This is pre Kabbalah, different
0: from Kabbalah. Right. How much was that
4: part of the discourse from which this then, at least the
1: imminent peace? Was I-, I think it's important to remember that most conventional Jews, Christians, Muslims, anything, pretty much only focus on the first dimension up here. God is the holy other out there, you know, divine being. And that's just how conventional religious thought works. So we often don't bring the other dimensions in, but there's certainly in all traditions but were they ever part of the mainstream conversation uh and i don't know what was first century judaism um, looking like
0: the, the the using of the term shekhinah as the indwelling presence of god becomes really prevalent later in the middle ages um, and as the feminine as the imminent as, however it's clear from the Torah on that it says, make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among you. And there's a sense of um, intimacy, uh, that, the, that Israel, by fulfilling the, the uh, covenant and, and fulfilling God's commandments, is, is graced and benefited, therefore, with the, the divine intimacy dwelling right in their midst.
4: And the whole Exodus story has God with
0: them all the time. I it's will be with you. I will be with you. Yes. So, so uh, okay. you know, since the... I'll, I'll get, there are a couple of other hints, but I, I really think that this explosion of the resuscitation of mystical and spiritual traditions, which have survived in, in both Judaism and Christianity, and not to mention, of course, other traditions to this day, but was severely suppressed and um, ridiculed starting in the 19th century with the emergence of scientific rationalism Mm -hmm. as hocus-pocus mumbo-jumbo, has made a huge comeback since the 60s. Right, The 60s was a time of spiritual awakening in this country. And as a result, the study of Jewish mysticism, the study of Christian mysticism, the emergence of New Age bookstores, all that stuff, um it we're we're in the midst of a kind of desire to resuscitate and bring to the surface these aspects of our traditions that have always been there now as a jewish teacher it's been clear it's been clear to me since i started that that judaism would be a dead letter if this if these if this wasn't in there Mm -hmm. and so my when i went to rabbinical school i went on a search to find this stuff. unfortunately, I had the teachers who could show it to me. Mm-hmm. It would only be um, uh, <laughs> real reasonable and gracious of me to assume the same is true about Christianity, even though I was raised to be very prejudiced against Christianity. But first, I had to get through my prejudice about Judaism. And, and then, now I'm ready to have this conversation, say, of course you've got it too. And we wouldn't be in we wouldn't be In in the ministry, if we didn't think that if it didn't sustain us, and we want to share that and pull that cover away, and we're doing it together and in dialogue, so another thought, Um, Judy, hold on, Martha, I'll I'll recognize you. Um, Regarding what uh, Gail was asking, Judaism does draw a line between us saying I am God, right, because the Torah is so insistent. That we're all made in the divine image, but that no one is God. Ain or milvado. There's no one. No one has. We are. We are children of God. We're manifestations of God. We're made in God's image. Moses. No one greater than Moses who knew God face to face and didn't didn't expire, right? And so, in Jewish, one of the one of the dances of Jewish mystical thought through the e- eons. Uh, because mystical experience is the experience that the self doesn't exist, other than as part of the greater self. We dissolve into the one. Um, and then when we return from that, we yearn for the one and we yearn for that rest. So but the fact the, the, the mystical awareness that I disappear, Judaism has to talk around that all the time. And, and Jewish mystical thought will talk about devekut, which means, Cleaving to God is the word that you use. Gluing yourself to God. It'll talk about different, but it always is wrestling with this. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the legacies of our tradition. The positive side of that legacy is the understanding that it's all of us or none of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? No king, no prophet, no is somehow fundamentally of a different category than every other human being. That's the benefit of that. But it also creates boundaries when we try to discuss, describe that, that uh, well. I and the Father are one experience. We, it's, so Judaism has trouble with that. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah. But it doesn't mean that Jews weren't experiencing it. They just had to... They, just, had, to the, couch the, it in. they had to couch it in acceptable Jewish language. Mm-hmm. And so there's a famous letter from the first Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, writing... Uh, You know, Jews often use in kiviyachol is the Hebrew term, which means as it were, and you'll say, you know, I know I shouldn't say it this way, but as it were, and then they'll say it, (laughs) right? And we see a lot of that in Jewish mystical talking. So um,
1: let's see. And Uh, and just to to follow up on that, Christians constantly historically struggle with the same tension because there's a push in the tradition that says we've got to maintain the creature-creator divide. And then in the mystical current within the tradition, people keep stepping over the line, um, and, and, get but, at the stake. and get burned at the stake at times. Absolutely, but some uh, of
0: the what's an example of that, Suzanne? Famous uh, Joan... Joan of Arc? <laughs> no, well, Joan of Arc. one for the, go ahead. Meister Eckhart. He was burned at the
4: stake. He had a
0: papal bull issued
4: against
1: right. him. Um, one who was burned at the stake was Marguerite Porite, oh, yes, right. who was a Beguin mystic. Uh, uh, these what century? Fourteenth, uh, maybe women who were starting these sort of alternative communities uh sort of like a monastic community but not under the oversight of the magisterium the church and they were constantly getting in trouble and marguerite perit wrote this book um the mirror of simple souls and it was really a reflection of this beautiful sort of non-dual christian mysticism and uh she was burned at the stake for the book later the book was mistakenly ascribed to an orthodox male saint of the church and it got an imprimatur stamped on it so you see the bias there not just against mystical experience but against women having mystical experience Um, but john of the cross says uh, the center of the soul is god saint uh, catherine of siena says my deepest me is god so you have orthodox mystics saying this and getting away with it from time to time
0: yeah. Okay, that's a good parallel, because in those wacky Middle Ages, everybody... No, there were, you know, the Kabbalists in Provence in the 1200s versus the rationalist Maimonideans. Oh, they were at, these were two Jewish schools that were at each other's throats, burning each other's books and vilifying each other. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, we want to get past that, everybody. Okay. All right, whose hands were up? Uh, Joy has been waiting a long time. No, you're okay? Okay, uh, let me just see. Martha and Helen and then and Jay, and then we'll go on.
7: Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I'm changing the subject a little, but I'm I'm hoping that it will be included. Someplace in one of these handouts was the notion that not only was Jesus um, influenced by the um, rabbinic thought of the time, but the opposite happened as well.
1: Oh, both traditions influenced each other? Yes, and I would like to
7: hear about how
0: the rabbis were influenced by Jesus. Oh, oh no, you misheard. i <laughs>
7: misheard. Uh, <laughs> not the rabbis
0: weren't influenced by Jesus.
7: By the thoughts of by
0: the by, by the emerging movement that developed after Jesus would be the way to express that. Oh uh, yes, uh, yes. Of okay, so, so did the teachings of there. Jesus teachings have of an impact on Jesus later Judaism? I the it's Yeah. Say, yeah. Um,
11: I'm
7: not sure it's the time for it. Right, let's I not go there. I also don't out. know enough
0: to talk very intelligently, okay. but the answer is most definitely yes. Okay. Everybody was influencing everybody. Wow. So, yeah. Right, and when, and, and when you were in a polemical debate with somebody, you're always staking out a position uh, to define yourself, mm-hmm. and so you could really say Judaism, as we know it, defined itself in opposition to and relationship to emerging Christianity. Uh, it, it goes very deep. We're not, there's no independent self here. But you're not here.
7: saying that there are specific teachings of Jesus that show up in rabbinic writings?
0: No, I'm going to say again, the teachings of Jesus show up in contemporary rabbinic writings. In other words, Jesus' insights were being expressed in similar ways by other rabbis. We spent a class on that earlier. Yeah. And uh, it's very really important to like understand that, that 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 Jesus was part of a context of rabbinic yes. Judaism in which these things were being said. You uh, see, Does that make yes. sense you see similar. Yes, I in-
7: thought it was it was going to be a little more direct that mm-hmm. that you could look well, at right? a, a teaching of Jesus and say this is how it showed up in rabbinic writings a hundred years later. But no, not you can show
0: how this teaching of Jesus and this teaching of Hillel are parallel okay, okay. and show up in rabbinic writings a hundred years later.
7: Okay, then I mm-hmm. must have misunderstood yeah. what I read. Thank you. Um, Helen and Jay. Yeah
11: statements that you have there were from John, and then they were attributed to...
1: Right, it's second-hand information. We can't right. say these are necessarily direct quotes, but they're quotes attributed to um, Jesus and his experience of God.
11: Right. It, makes it you know, the first one and the third one are direct contradictions, really. I mean, just on the face of that, because the first one, he's separating God and himself. Yes and the last one he's saying god and the father and i are one. So you you know to me the only way to really reconcile that is to say he's not saying the father is greater than i, he's saying the father is greater than us. And then when you say we and the father are one, it's easier to understand than when he's saying just the two of us. I want to
0: suggest that you can't understand this. Yeah, right. That, <laughs> that
11: that way. If I but that's that, that, the rational mind the trying to conceptualize, conceptualize it. But I want to
0: give you a different. person. the
11: father and all of us are one. That, it's,
0: that it's, works it's, for you. you Good. That. But now, instead of trying to swallow it, think in terms of relativity. What was the insight of relativity? <laughs> that uh, among the many, one is that uh, the. Uh, the the nature of objects changes dispe- depending on your point of view. Wow. Has the object changed, or our position relative to it? Right. right. So objectivity itself is 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 deeply limited. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? So if you instead you think of this, now I'm standing at the center of the universe. Now I'm standing at the edge of my universe. Uh, it's the same perceiver, but at a different place in their experience. And then you don't have to, I just want to say, this is a, this is radically different. Then you don't have to see how you can, why they don't make sense. They don't make sense. Because one is from this perspective, and the other is from this perspective. My goodness. It's kind of like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. When you're two inches away from the edge, it's terrifying. When you're over here, it's awesome. Which is it? And it all depends on your, where you're standing. But he's
11: preaching to the right i mean Jesus, but he's, he's trying to con- is he saying the father and i the, fa- the father is greater than i or is he saying to me is he saying the father is greater than, than us than ah us?
1: i see what you're saying uh-huh. okay is he speaking about universal, universal human experiences
0: oh i'm yeah. sorry yes that's universal something. human experience okay so that's <laughs> he, that's uh, the uh, way
11: we or us yes. or i in all those yes statements makes it Yeah.
1: This so this is the way our theologian Panikkar would interpret that that Jesus is speaking out of his own experiential or contemplative awareness and he's naming his experience but but that these are universal human experiences that each of us could potentially say so yes in that sense you could substitute it with we except in the sense that I can't speak for you I can only speak out of my own experience
0: but I understand
1: what you're saying but but yes
11: them I feel that way Um, I don't know
1: what he was saying I can't get inside his head but it's just it's a it's a helpful device for looking at um, ways that we can frame the divine human experience as it's recorded in Jesus and then Paniker would say yes that that each of us as a Christophany as a disclosure of the human divine union um, can encounter these dimensions of our own selfhood
11: in a way, is, he, is it less of him declaring himself, or is it more as a teacher and a leader right. for the people?
0: Right. Well, and the
1: okay. the idea is that it's not an individual self that can declare this. Mm-hmm. This is when you know only the most ego erased being could actually speak from this point, because this isn't the little encapsulated ego speaking any longer. It, it can't speak from that place of total unity. Um,
0: just a second, there's been another person waiting. Sorry. Jay.
6: Thank you. First of all, this is a great class. I want to thank you for it. And, and, um, and it raises many questions. But, I, but, but there's one question that rings in my head, and, and, and I'll make it quick. You know, your, your analogy with the reality based on structure and the reality and the other realities. The, the, the big word that resonates in my mind, and I'm not sure if I'm, the, I'm on the right track here, but I'd like you to comment on, on faith.
0: On what faith. faith? Faith,
6: faith, because I think faith, a belief, plays a huge part in that um, <coughs> other reality. And we, all, and even though we all need faith, a belief in something, we all have it to different degrees. So um, I wonder if you could just comment. How I mean, it, it may not be a reasonable question, but in your minds, is faith? There? First, I just want to observe
1: that you, you're conflating the terms faith and belief as the same thing, that faith is a belief, and I would say they're very different things.
6: Well, isn't faith a, 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 a belief in certain, certain aspects?
1: Not, well, it depends on who you ask. Um, yes. I know one teacher who says that um, that whereas faith, um, belief clings, belief wants to, I'm going to conceptualize and frame And have a belief, and faith does the opposite. Faith lets go, and so if you imagine that you're in what does faith mean? uh, Sort of, you could say. No, faith means trust. Trust. A a deep trust in the in the deep goodness of reality. You could say that that uh, if you're if you're in the ocean and you're drowning, if you flail and clutch at the water, you sink. Whereas if you let go, you float. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that's been described as the difference between faith, which is that deep inner opening, trusting, letting go of your concepts and theology and all of it. Um, and belief is the, you know, that's, that's one way of framing it. It's one of it.
0: the abiding confusions for everybody. Uh, because we want to be able to have this. We can't have it. We can only open ourselves to experiencing it. And so the paradox of religious experience is that you can't pin it down and yet it sustains many people. Uh, the people for who have found it sustaining and then want to pin it down wind up <coughs> fossilizing their experience, and that's what happens to most organized religion. But the impulse behind it, paradoxically, is an impulse of profound letting go and trusting, because faith means trust, fide. Trust, that's what it means. Are you going to live with faith? What would its opposite be? Yes. Um, you know, that's an interesting question. Uh, but we conflate faith and belief, and it's a giant problem throughout history. Uh, the problem of being religious seekers is that we also want security. It's the human way. And we are each in a constant struggle between seeking a sense of security and knowing what's going to happen next, versus a desire to know more deeply, uh, and that's the wrestle we're all in. And and uh, God willing, you know, uh, this synagogue, we're going to keep ourselves uncomfortable enough to be able to experience that, uh, rather than try to secure ourselves, what I call many synagogues ethnic cheering clubs. You know, because they're not doing that anymore. They're, they're holding on. I sympathize. I am holding on. I'm, I, but I'm not, that's not going to be the ground of my experience.
1: And the definition of belief has shifted considerably post-enlightenment, post European focus on rational mind. Um, in, in the Christian creeds that we say on Sunday mornings, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus Christ, um, the the root word credo, I believe, comes from the same root as, as cardia, as heart. And so it's oh, really? often been said that a better translation would be, I give my heart to. And in that sense, belief is much more like trust. It's a giving of the heart. In, in our contemporary situation, where we actually have become very skeptical of spiritual reality. We've got a reductionist worldview. This is all there is. Right. So belief becomes a, a cognitive game. And belief is, OK, that's really hard to believe, but I'm going to believe in it, which means I'm going to intellectually assent to it with my you know, rational mind. Um, belief in, in the earlier centuries of both Judaism and Christianity wasn't, wasn't about this
0: so much. When we worship together here, what I want from everybody is a willingness to suspend disbelief because that is getting in your way of experiencing whatever is and so uh a willing suspension of disbelief is where magic happens it's why we go to theater it's like i went to see um uh some movie recently i I can't remember what it was oh yeah the martian i went to see the martian and I was thrilled because I was able to suspend my disbelief for the whole time and experience this adventure, you know? Does that, make me a, does, that, does that make me a sucker? You know, it's like, depends on the context. So when it's time, and the time is right, willing suspension of disbelief is what makes life juicy.
5: <laughs> mm.
0: It's what it's it's where it's it's what makes it, it's where the transcendent is it's where we go beyond ourselves and so I'm not I'm not uh, I don't want to be a sucker uh, in terms of say the political realm I want to be like I want to be as rigorous as I can be but there's another realm mm-hmm. of human experience which requires us to practice a different set of tools the ability to trust and let go if we only do one, we're a sucker. If we only do the other, we're dried up, miserable people. Mm-hmm. Right? So we have, to, we have to be able to have all, as I like to say, be going on all pistons here. Uh, and know and have the, have the, have the sechel, that's the Jewish word for the common sense, the sort of like basic, not, basic ability to understand what's going on, to know which situations are for letting go in and which are for being rigorous in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, to, and, and it's not an either or game. I'm a scientist, and I'm a mystic, right? I'm investigating all of reality. This aspect of reality needs this kind of investigation. But this aspect of reality needs this kind of investigation. And I want them to inform each other. Does that make sense, everybody? I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, oh, good, good. Uh, I'm greedy for life's experience. I want it all. Do you understand what I'm saying? and that's what I mean when I say God is one. Right? I want and all of it. I want all of it. I love you, God. I, you know, Show it to me, and I'll use all my tools to experience it. And so that's, uh, yeah, I hope that's helpful. I want to jump over here because you've...
11: Been... Well, you know, you addressed it perfectly because, uh, because my background is film, and it's based on uh, a suspension of disbelief. Mm. And so thank you for addressing that. And also, I just want to say that you have made clear... To me, the attributes of the Trinity, which
8: I had never had a concept of, and I'm just um, thankful for that explanation. You, you know, Thank
1: one you. of the simplest other ways to frame that whole Trini- Trinitarian thing, is to say, um, Father, God beyond, God as transcendence. Um, uh, Son, you could say God among, and Holy Spirit, God within. Or you could flip, you could. But again, yeah. this is the thing that the early Christians say. They they use the word the Greek word perichoresis, which means a circle dance, and they say that these oh, really? members uh-huh, they say that the nice. members of the Trinity mutually interabide abide in each other. So you can't separate any one experience. To enter into transcendence, suddenly you find yourself in eminence. To go deep in eminence, suddenly you open to the transcendent. They're not um, discrete experiences that can be actually separated. They dance in and through each other. Um, it's too bad they fought about it so much right why did they fight (laughs) and and one other thought on this believing thing if we can shift to that language of the heart to say I believe in Judaism is I give my heart to this story maybe it doesn't mean I believe that you know God literally part of the Red Sea but I believe I give my heart to this story I believe in Christianity I give my heart to this story Uh Um, and then it's coming from here and not from here Mm. Yeah. Stu's been waiting.
5: I, I wanted to say that one, one wonderful uh, analogy that I've been reading is the Father or God is the ocean. The ocean. And we are a wave. So mm-hmm. God is everywhere, mm-hmm. it's never separated. Mm-hmm. So we are the waves on the ocean and we disappear. So, in a sense, the ocean is greater than me because yes. I'm only a wave. Then the last one, I and the Father are one, we are the oce- all the, the ocean The wave is one with the so ocean. The, na- right. the analogy nice. really works. From nice. the, uh,
1: at Find analogies
0: around. that work for you.
1: So did everyone hear that, the, the metaphor of the ocean, that mm-hmm. that the ocean is one, is, is God, then we are waves, and the wave Waves is, are temporary manifestations of individuation. <laughs> right, and the wave is is, um, is smaller than God, God is greater, but then the wave is also one with the
0: ocean. Our, yeah. And when, when the wave subsides, it returns to the oneness.
1: And that, that, that three-part thing we talked about of personhood that comes from both Christianity and Judaism, um, of spirit, soul, and body, if you see spirit as, as the transcendent, and then body as the manifest, then um, soul soul is your unique personhood. The unique name of god or qualities of god being spoken into existence through your your unique being and so it's the sort of meaning place of of the manifest of body and the unmanifest the transcendent and they they come together in in us so we are the many faces
10: of god um and that doesn't mean the soul is something that goes on after you're
5: dead that's another definition. it's
0: another question yeah that's another i guess i'm going to add to that
1: and again, that's a, it's good. just a little map. It, real, it's not real, whatever. It's
0: words. This is just a little taste. What do you say in Yiddish? A fourth place? Uh, yeah. Uh, a bissel A bissel um, but a fourth place is like an hors d'oeuvre, you know? Um, uh, but in Kabbalah, th- this is where this idea of God is processed is in its most developed manifestation. And so therefore, there's the quality in, in uh, Kabbalah of chokhmah which is wisdom, and Bina, which is, which is understanding or contemplation or gestation, and they manifest together in, in, in Da'at, which is uh, consciousness. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's understood that Chokmah is the flash of insight that in, inseminates the contemplative mind that leads to a, 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 a great awareness. And then as you go down the tree, the next triad is called chesed, which is unbounded, love. flowing love. love grace. Unbounded. Mm-hmm. But it has to be mediated through gevurah, which is limitations and boundaries, so it can manifest as tiferet, which is um, radiant splendor. Heret. So when you study Kabbalah, you, they call this the lightning bolt. It keeps going. Uh, as a consistent kind of process of of um, uh, one... Manifestation. Manifestation, manifestation, and then the... So anyway, it's a whole other subject. We're going to talk about that tonight in Albany, actually, because well, well, well. I'm teaching up there tonight. Please.
1: You know, the, you said they come together to form consciousness. One of the other... Um, St. Augustine uses a number of sort of Trinitarian models, but sometimes it's knower, known, and knowing are the three that are one. It's not actually a separate, you know, it's one field the knower, the known, and the act of knowing, um, or um, the lover, the beloved, and the act of loving, uh, or to use the word, the language of the word, the speaker, the spoken, and the act of speaking, and that that shows that you're talking about a single unit of reality or experience, and you can't pull any
0: part out of that. Um, If there wasn't a beloved, what is the lover? In other words, they don't exist separate from each other.
9: God made gerunds. Pauline. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Poly- so I just want to state what's probably the obvious that we're, we're trying to encapsulate something in a linear, finite
0: way with language, yeah. right. which is so impossible. limiting and
3: impossible. And then on top of it, you add to it our conditioned rational response. Way of thinking on top of it. So, and you started the whole um, talk this this afternoon by talking about that most of us and in most of our churches and synagogues are stuck in this first one Mm -hmm. my father is greater than myself. And you think of why. And because if we all think of how we are, we're not only taught as children but how we are even taught as adults, how we even just read with the intellect, Mm -hmm. we can't talk about mystical experience, which is something we all have. We all have some moment when these things we can really feel with our entire being coexisting within us, not just in this way, or in this way, or in this way, but at the same time the same dynamically, by yeah. going up and down the spheres. And we've all experienced it. It's when we try to talk about it. You know, that's why we have these creative, the film, the 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 painters, the yeah. you know, all of the dance, the movement, because it's something beyond words. So I would love to have this class go on, but before we speak about any of this, find
0: experience. some way for us to experience yeah. it. Oh, oh. Yeah. And then
2: yeah. 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 Oh, stop a it song. And a story. It. But there's a tiny some way. Good. And we'll Here. all do it together. I think Joy is going to answer no, no, to that.
9: We're all
2: well, together. Well, all of us, actually, on this, because love's the thing. Ramakrishna, Hindu. We haven't talked Hinduism a little bit. But Ramakrishna was asked by a wonderful woman, I've done everything. I'm a Hindu, a, but I can't believe in God. And Ramakrishna said to her, tell me, is there somebody you love? And she says, yes. With all my heart, I love my grandson. Mm-hmm. Therein is God. Mm-hmm. In other words, if, you all, if we all just thought of the person or people we love, but literally, actually love, there's no longer words are needed. needed un- experience, un- because that's the experience. Un- the OK. Yeah, he didn't mean that the little boy was God. Yep, yep. He meant the well, experience. That he wasn't. <laughs>
0: Everybody do that right now. Think, of, <laughs> think about your dog or you're the person, the, anybody you love the most. And then notice what happens in your body mm-hmm. and in your being.
5: Yeah,
0: well, do it. Don't talk about it. Mm. <laughs> At That moment we are infinitely blessed. When Anybody choose? Just a second, Susan,. Okay. If anyone's stuck there and isn't able to access that, don't worry, it, you'll have a chance. It'll come. And anyone who can access it at this moment are their words. Now extend that love to all the people in this room. Without effort. No effort required. Everybody's somebody's bubble. (laughs) and let it flow ever outward from there. I am as much a beneficiary of this activity as anyone who might benefit from my loving energy. And, yeah.
8: Why is this so difficult to do
0: on a grand scale? Yeah. Well, I'm making,
6: that that I'm making an advertisement.
0: I'm making an advertisement to find a community of worship where that's what we're trying to do. I I, I mean it. It's like it doesn't have to be a synagogue or a church, but for me this is the purpose of worship, is to open ourselves to this reality. And so it's hard to do by myself.
9: Mm-hmm. You need two or more. Well, I need people. I
0: know some people who really prefer being by themselves. Everyone has a different temperament. But for me, I need a, I need a as, one, as the one Jewish poet said, I need a crowd around this mountain. <laughs> uh, so yes.
1: This is the gift of, of spiritual communities and traditions, and also the practices that come with those communities because uh, we just entered into a practice. This was a spiritual uh, discipline that we took on for a short time together. And those practices are, are encounters with facets of reality, with facets of our own souls, with facets of the divine. And our traditions, Judaism, Christianity, or otherwise, have held access points uh, into those encounters and have held them alive in community as living streams. and this is also one of the wonderful things what we did was in a way a devotional practice we found a focal point for our love and uh, you know that focal point in the christian tradition could be jesus and you take this focal point and and you feel that love and then you let the love move beyond the focal point you take the torah scrolls and you feel that love for them and they become a focal point that allows that love to build and then you dissolve the focal point into the ground of your heart and let the love radiate out universally uh, and, and you see in these different levels of experience we talked about uh, different kinds of practices, you know, maybe in this deep unitive, I and God are one Maybe those are our contemplative practices, meditation practices that open us to that depth But so then there are devotional practices God is greater than me, or I am in God and God is in me. And in those devotional practices we open ourselves to that dance of the lover and the beloved um, and that dance itself then dissolves into the oneness. Uh, so uh, the traditions give us ways in to each of these kinds of experiences. I love you use the word encounter. That was so beautiful. You, you, you're so articulate. <laughs> and and it, it can be helpful when we talk about spiritual practices and disciplines. It can sound really heavy-handed. Well, we have to practice, which means we we pra- practice makes perfect, you know. But to shift the language from not just a practice but an encounter. In every practice that we participate in, there's a door to an encounter uh, with the holy.
9: Which is what Margaret Mead, I think, meant when she talked about the world changing because of small groups. And there's, I think it's Christian, when two or more are gathered in my name, there, there is love. Regardless of but if it's, it's practicing religion, or friendship, or whatever it is, when we get together and there are two or more of us, there is automatically love there. It's just focusing on it mm-hmm. and realizing that it's there. And Margaret Mead said that's what's going to change the world. Indeed, it always did. Small groups. Mm-hmm. You
0: know, Susan, that's so beautiful. Uh, just for the in the theme of this class, the Christian analog to where two or more are gathered in my name, um, I it's I dwell with you. What is it this statement? Is it there is love mean, or it? I I am in the midst of them, as the saying from Jesus,
1: where two or right. three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. Right.
0: And in the Jewish contemporary tradition, whenever it says whenever two or more gather, they have to speak words of Torah, mm. um, because uh, and words of Torah it's means crazy. words of spiritual yeah. Yeah. N- yeah. truth. You know, not like it, that's it's what it not means. Gossip, but right. <laughs> that and that's, uh, that's, that's the analog. But I, it was a... You know who it was—that beautiful um, wedding song mm-hmm. by uh, Paul, Paul Stookey. Well, yeah, right. Paul yeah. Noel Stuckey wrote it after they had broken up for a while. Right. When he was—he—he's still, a, uh, I think, a practicing Christian, and he—and he wrote that beautiful wedding song. Right. Wherever two or more of you are gathered, gathered in my name, in there is love. Is such a <laughs> love that song. You know,
1: the, the, traditionally it was understood that we're talking about these different dimensions or facets of, of divine reality, and, and and like Jonathan said, it doesn't have to be three. It can be, you know, three million. Um, but traditionally, uh, in, in both Judaism and Christianity, we exercised our relationship to each of those points on that wheel of divine experience um, through uh, commitment to a number of different practices. Right. Um, so, The daily prayers that are offered in Judaism and in Christianity, Christianity also has a a rhythm of daily prayers, that can be seen as your sort of, uh, God is greater than I, it's this daily stable offering to the transcendent dimension of divinity. Uh, Then we come together congregationally, um, be it on Shabbat, be it Friday Jummah prayers for Muslims, uh, Sunday Eucharistic worship for Christians, Uh, we come together communally and have that experience and then there's also our sort of um, personal practices and devotions contemplative prayer meditation um, that that takes us into that for christians it was that daily rhythm of of daily prayer that's corporate prayer that we're all praying the same prayers that was the praise to the father Uh, the sunday gathering was communion with the son because eucharist was had bread and wine And then your private practices, that was prayer through the Holy Spirit, through the eminent divine. Uh, But you see that same balanced system that exercises different facets of of our souls in any tradition. Uh, Judaism has that daily rhythm of prayer, has the congregational gathering, um, and has private practices. And the way that was defined within Christianity was that uh, through your private devotion, uh, it connects the individual self to God. Through your corporate worship, it connects the, the corporate body as a whole to God. And then through that daily practice of the, the prayers that are offered, um, the, the con- you know morning and evening prayer, whatever it may be, um, in that, the individual, is, so the individual is connected to the body through the daily prayers that we're all offering together. Um, individual to God through the private, and then the corporate, the whole body to God. So it, it's exercising all those facets. And it's one of the beautiful things about any spiritual tradition that you get a whole system in place, whereas if you're on your own, you might only be exercising one dimension or two dimensions as opposed
0: to all three. Since we're talking about threes, there are two very famous sayings in the first chapter of the teachings of the sages, which is the Jewish Book of Wisdom aphorisms from the first and second century. And the reason I'm going to tell you both of them is because there's no discussion of which one is the right one. Okay, so it's it said, Rabbi so-and-so says, I can't remember who, the world stands on three things. On Torah, which is the pursuit of spiritual awareness, spiritual wisdom, on Avoda, which is worshipping God, and on gmilud Chasadim, on acts of loving kindness.
1: So Torah,
0: Avo- Torah worship, worship and worship. acts of loving kindness. And
1: acts, okay.
0: Uh, so and it, that's the Torah three-legged s- stool, huh?
1: Is Torah, could Torah be, s- is it
0: s- study, devotion, and acts, or is that me? Yeah, it's st- study as in s- uh, pursuing spiritual growth. Okay. Pursuing spiritual growth. Acts um, of worship. Worshipping and um, acts of loving kindness, acts. which are interpersonal. And that's a beautiful triad. Then that starts the chapter. Then there's a whole bunch of wisdom sayings. Then the end of the chapter, it says, the world stands on three things. On justice, truth, and peace. Um, and, you know, we can spend a lot, of it, but I'm saying this, like, the, this three thing is all over the place, and those are really central ideas in Judaism. I know, I know that changed the subject a little bit. No, but no, that didn't change just, it at all. That was exactly what we were, yeah, yeah. That, that, that a
1: tradition at its best is able to exercise all these facets of our souls and give us practices yes. and ways into each of these, um, individually and communally. Uh-huh.
0: So Joya. there's another plug for organized religion. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Depends who's organizing it. Right.
2: I was thinking that we, some of the people, because I can talk.
0: Talk yeah. a little louder, Joya.
2: One of the things that we could also bring in, or I could bring in, or feel that is here, are the three phases of the moon, and the old goddess, and the god is a woman, and the idea that the feminine and the masculine are all there together and that it's essential to understand that as a circle, that the, 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 the two are not opposed in any way, but are actually brought together, that full love happens when both are together. And that idea of full love brings in compassion, and the idea that you can feel what someone else is feeling and suffering, and that you actually then want to be part of it and change that, and that that's just a an actual way of being, so that you look at the moon, and you can see it waning, and yet you have faith that it's going to happen again, and that there's the young moon, the, the mature moon, and then the old moon. And each has in it its own practice and its own way. If they've experienced youth, if they've experienced maturity, if they've experienced old age, then they really have experienced the totality, and they can go on and, and help others, as well as keep living every day, every moment. Because there's You've. yearning in it and the desire. That's why Aphrodite and all that. The desire, the yearning. And those are living things. They're not dead concepts. They're the way we feel about new art or new things or anything.
0: Another Life. central Jewish, Life. thank you, another central Jewish triad, since I'm on a roll, <laughs> is King Solomon's writings. In the, to- the, the Jewish tradition ascribes three books to King Solomon. The Song of Songs, which says it says uh, uh, to Solomon, right? The Song of Songs, which is attributed to Solomon in his youth, that he wrote it in his youth, passionate, erotic love. Uh, that he wrote the book of Proverbs in his Do middle age. Do only young
5: people feel that, Jonathan?
0: Uh, no. The point of the the point of the triad is that we, It just what she was saying, the, the, the new moon still incorporated and yes. the full moon is yes, still right. incorporated. In include I right. that
2: you don't have to feel that it's not you don't. Real, no, no there. But,
0: but there we are again with triads, you know, constant cycle of living and dying, right? And um, so Song the, of Songs. Song of Songs, the book of Proverbs written in his middle age, uh, which is the wisdom of... Uh, which is essentially, uh, you know, here's how you have to do it. The
5: how to. The sort of, the of
0: conventional wisdom. How to? How to? How to? But conventional how-to. in terms of how, how, do, get, how, how do you get? How do practical, to, practical. Practical wisdom. Yeah, practical you're wisdom. Not
2: the only one. The not right.
0: And then he wrote Ecclesiastes, uh-huh. in his very in his old age, a book that says, "It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. It is what it is. Isn't that wonderful? Enjoy it while it's there. <laughs> Don't <laughs> grieve it when it goes." That is, if anything, the only way I'm going to grow old gracefully, right? Uh, is, is by being able to accept that that's so. And that that triad of three biblical books is associated to the same author. Mm-hmm. I think that's very significant nice, yeah. to contemplate. It wasn't this guy's position. This. It this is what he wrote when he was young, this is what he wrote in the middle age, and, and this is what he wrote at the end of his life. Cool. Um, isn't it cool?
5: Yeah
9: yeah Anti-Semitism? yeah i think well <laughs> well we have so
1: we, we were just sort of having I a little so. hidden conversation here about what to do for the 15 minutes and um we could shift gears but it, it would change the tenor of where we're heading yeah. where we've been headed um oh you're but right we, we certainly need to have this conversation so this could take all of our next um our next time together or we, we could start it now and then transition. Or we could just see what questions are arising and then maybe I'm sing a him. song or two together. I'm, I'm with him. Yeah,
0: let's... let's I don't want to forget about We will not forget it. this topic. Oh, we topic. won't, we won't. I'll yeah. recognize you in a second. Next... Susan, too,
2: because you may be prepared. Oh, yeah. To... Oh, yeah. oh you maybe you doing. can let's provide an
1: introduction talking about oh, faith, that's a not, not fault, idea. Which will right. be set up for next, next yeah. week where we dive Would into the topic. Would you do, do that? Topic. Um, perfect. I, I, I really Thank you. had thought this conversation about the Trinity that it was going to be about 15 minutes <laughs> and that we'd just talk a little bit about that and then we would transition so my apologies yes,
0: yes. yes. We, have two, we have two more classes next Thursday is during Hanukkah it's December 10th and the following week, December 17th is our final class and closing in on Christmas uh, Susan, this is the perfect way in Thank you, Susan.
8: You are welcome.
0: Reverend Susan class.
8: Um I am here because I have been working for years to, as far as I know, I think I'm the only person who is actually working at the grassroots level to try to change the historic animosity that has arisen between Jews and Christians. And um, there's a, and I brought this bridges. you might not want to buy it or even get it. It is uh, just filled with the documents of Roman Catholic, Protestant, Anglican um, churches saying their new commitment to correct, the anti-judaism that has grown up over the years so here we have people really? at the highest levels of the bureaucracy of of the christian faiths and and it's staying up there this is this is not new this is going back to the 60s and possibly some as early as 1950s
0: it's edited by franklin sherman Bridges, Documents of the Christian-Jewish Dialogue, Volume 2. Come up on the look at it after the class.
1: Does anyone else need a handout? Um,
8: So why is it staying up there? And why are we still going to church and hearing sermons, for instance, that um, take passages from the Hebrew Bible and pair it, and um, having paired it with passages from the Greek Bible, then they go on to show how this was uh, somehow just preparation for this. In other words, we're still thinking in terms of inferior, superior, preparatory, arrival, uh, things which uh, if, you, if you read this, you would imagine you'd never hear, but you do hear. And my particular concern has been for years, just one thing, not that it would cover everything, but the one thing, which is in our word of God, our holy scripture, when we are hearing the New Testament read aloud in church on Sundays to countless people, we are hearing statements that are negative about Jews and Judaism. It's, ju- it's in the text. So I have um, been... Perse- and how did I get onto this? Well, I read this book and this is called Constantine's Sword. It is a detailed history of how Christians have persecuted Jews for two thousand years, well, I don't think any Christian <clears throat> doubts that there has been persecution. But to get the whole load of it, the whole scope of it, is just overwhelming. So, I was asking just recently, been asking myself, why? Why have I cared about this, and why have I wanted to do something about it? And it was, it was it. You know, and I've, well, let me back up and say I've been asking myself, why isn't everybody as concerned as I am? And you know, it's not like I have some moral superiority, but it just so happens that I read that book, which very much opened me to our culpability in this matter. And then I was sitting in, when I was rector of a church, sitting in church, looking out at the congregation. It was, I think, a Good Friday. It might have been, yeah, I think it was. And there in the congregation was a man I knew and loved, a Jew, a friend. And as these horrible words were being read, and I looked at him, I was suddenly overcome with shame and grief and just a whole tumult of of emotions. And that was the combination of circumstances, seeing someone eye to eye whom I truly respected and cared for, and having all this information in my mind, and saying this must not go on. So now I've given you... the, uh, a list of the things that I have done to try to uh, bring about the changes. And I'm not going to repeat all of it, but the first thing I tried was to write an article to alert people to the damage that we are doing many, many Sundays in the church year and saying, don't you hear this? Let's wake up. Let's make some changes. And um, big surprise, my article wasn't published.
1: Well, who did you submit it to?
8: Christian Center. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that was the top of, you know, they only publish the great scholars and who am I? But um, I tried another place and was also rejected. So at, the, I, at that point, I could so easily have said, well, I've tried and that's that. And I just couldn't walk away like that. I think it's a little bit like if you're campers, you know, you don't just leave your campfire burning and hike on off into the wilderness. You're really pretty careful to put out that fire. And so I had a feeling that this, you know, this is a fire that's going here and I just can't walk away from it. So when the articles brought me no success, I didn't give up and I probably never will. It's just a question of steadily, day by day, doing something to try to advance the cause of. I'm As I said, I'm limiting myself specifically to getting rid of the day when we hear those negative passages proclaimed aloud in our churches as the word of
0: God. So Susan, uh, I think people would be interested in knowing that there's something called, in the church, there's something called the lectionary. Mm-hmm. Which is a, that's
8: actually in oh, it's in, in there. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, but Susan's not proposing changing the words of the Bible He's saying, let's not read those parts in, out loud in church. Let's no, pick other parts. Is, is that right? Not quite. Good, then straighten us out.
8: Um, well, we we have a schedule of readings that take us through a three year cycle. and um, that is something like, Oh, I've forgotten the numbers, but a quite a small percent of the New Testament is actually heard, and a much smaller percent of the Hebrew Bible is actually heard. And uh, so, what I what I am well as a, as you will read if you read this, um, Professor Bruce Chilton over at Bard is now about to start working on a retranslation of. Just the parts that we hear in church. Oh,
1: so lectionary
0: translations, retranslations. It's tra-
8: retranslating the Bible. Oh, cool. And um, let me just say a little bit about that because, well, oh, for instance, I went to a conference recently, and a Roman Catholic priest said to me, "Well, that is, you know, unthinkable. You don't just, you can't do that." And that, you know, that, that's a perfectly fine point of view, and maybe your faith rests on not changing a word and if if so then don't change it. But I you know, most of us our faith doesn't rest on word for word, it rests on the spirit. And um, so I've kind of lost my train of thought here. Hold on. Sorry if I distracted. Um yeah, I want to go back and say another thing that keeps me going is I'm, I'm so astounded that there aren't more people who are with me on this, Christians who see it the way I do and care. So then I say to myself, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> that I'm just not seeing this right. And I'm waiting and listening and I'm not hearing it. I mean, I'm ready to give up like that if you showed me why I'm on the wrong track so far And I'm thinking now of that priest who said, no, you can't change a thing. Um, I, I don't agree with that, and I don't think it's true. So I am continuing, and I am continuing to listen to other points of view. But at this point, after quite a few years, I think I've heard most of the objections. And they don't seem to me to hold water.
1: And one of the things that can be done, these passages that Susan's talking about, and and next week we'll actually start looking at some of the passages, you see anti-Semitism starting to sort of creep into and through the New Testament, and as we get to the later sort of layers of the New Testament, you see it becoming more explicit. Um, And so we're going to look at some of those passages and contextualize them and, and sort of talk about what's going on, but part of it is what Susan's talking about, how do we then proclaim these texts within Christian worship. The Gospel of John 71 times uses the phrase, the Jews, (laughs) generally with with a negative light. They hid for fear of the Jews. Um, uh, Jesus was persecuted by the Jews. You get these statements. um, And then they're proclaimed in Sunday liturgy. And one of the proposals is that, uh, you know, what Susan's talking about, it's not, well, we're gonna rewrite the Bible but we have to contextualize and and retranslate some of these. Um, the word, I think it's judaioi, is the Greek word, that also can literally be translated Judean, uh, can be referring to the locals, you know, not the Jews. Um, but, but what you see creeping in there is, is um, John's gospel, which uses that language. It's the last gospel probably written at a time when Christians are starting to be pushed out of the synagogues, and, and a, a separation is happening. And so they're able to draw this other identity that then they you know, can push back against. Um, so how can we uh, contextualize and retranslate? It's not rewrite the scriptures, but it's...
8: No, and that's another closing point for me because I think it's time to close. Um, not to... Because the Bible as given, the Christian Bible, um, and especially the New Testament, you know, it has these things in it that are um, historically wrong, theologically wrong. But why would we, I mean, no one's ever going to erase all that text. It's just out there. But we can look at it and say, where's the gift in this? And there can be a gift. And one that occurs to me would be to say, wake up, Susan. Wake up, everyone. There is no such thing as a flawless human being, a flawless document. And we are wrong if we want to put our faith and our worship uh, onto words, onto a thing outside of us. And um, I think that would help us to mature spiritually if we could give up that need to worship something that is human-made. Even though I fully believe that scripture is divinely inspired, but it's not divine. (laughs) And that, Mm. I think that when we look at those mistakes, it really will bring home to us the need for growing spiritually, which will help us to grow into peace more, more completely. And I would like to add this last thought, which is, I think it's starting already to happen. Because um, uh, recently, just within the last week or so, the Roman Catholic bishops in Wales and um, and England sent a message to the Holy See saying, please change that New Testament prayer. I mean, that Good Friday prayer. Mm. And here's what Pope Benedict um, authorized in 2008. And this is the text of the prayer. Let us also pray for the Jews that our God and Lord may illuminate their hearts, that they acknowledge Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men. Men? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm out.
1: So well, the Jewish the woman back. off the hook. Yes.
8: <laughs> so um, look at. Don't you? I mean, it's like um, in the spring, you know, when a frozen river starts to break up. And I think that, and just recently the, the Lutherans in Germany um, met as a, you know, the highest ecologic, eco, the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical the body to say, we repudiate what Luther wrote about the Jews. Really? Wow. Yes.
0: Wow.
8: Now it doesn't say they repudiate Luther, but that they recognize that he isn't 100%... <laughs> Perfect, and they recognized wow. the flaw, and they officially repudiated it. So I feel as though here and there, all over the world, these things are starting to. Is this per
1: been undone, or is this
5: still the? Official? Well, no.
8: That's they asked them to to change, who change knows. it. Okay.
5: We're, we're, as far
2: as I know, since the Second Council, uh, the, even the Catholic Church doesn't believe that it has the only truth. It actually has it written in its doctrine. If they would bother to see it, it actually says that.
0: This so, is. It would be
2: good. And I've heard lots of priests, too, when they've had these texts, explain that they don't mean that. They mean and and make a point of it and even write it in their Sunday thing. So it is happening, but keep the pressure going. And And I'm going to say,
0: you know, it's after two now, but I want to say that Susan has actually had much success in uh, the um, Episcopalian Church. Mm. um, And beyond. And beyond. Which I'll read. I'll read about. But I know that people have been. People are receptive to what you're <laughs> yes, offering here. Yes. Look yes. at her website, Faith Not Fault, her Can
1: blog. Sign up for the blog. Sign Faith up for the not the not emails. It's that are on sent this out. handout. Uh, yeah. Okay.
0: Susan, oh, the information's in here. Oh, okay. That's why she handed it out. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Mark. The book. Well, I just wanted to ask um, Ruth Chilton's retranslation. Oh.
7: Okay. Is it um, re?
8: Uh, focusing some of these statements that are most objectionable. That's the whole point of it, yes. Okay. Wow. Um, well,
0: thank you. Hey, everybody, thank you. Uh, thank you, Susan. Is that enough time? Sorry. Um, uh, we'll meet again next week. I'll, we'll talk about your idea next week. And uh, this um, Hanukkah starts Sunday night.
2: Hanukkah
0: sale's open now, I think. Oh, if you need Hanukkah candles or other Hanukkah paraphernalia, we have a Hanukkah sale in one of our classrooms back there. Ah, great. Thanks everybody.
8: Yes.